good to see you all out this evening. There's, uh, I'd say, a little good chunk of our number that's not able to be with us tonight, whether it just be because of the time of the season with a lot of uh, people going on vacations or just the time of the season where a lot of people are just getting sick with all kinds of good things. But um, we want to make sure that those that are sick among us, that we're constantly checking on them, making sure they're doing all right, and uh, praying for safe travels for those that, that are not able to be with us tonight. And I would just add to that, make sure that you never forget on your prayer list those that are just spiritually sick, that we haven't seen just because of their own choices. We'll make sure that we're reaching out to them as well and constantly praying for them. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be uh, reading from that passage in just a moment. But uh, if, if you've been in the adult class recently, in at least on the Sunday mornings, we've been discussing prayer lately. And we even were discussing prayer not too long ago, uh, a few months ago, in uh, just, just really talking about becoming more devoted to prayer. We should be, as mature Christians, devoted to prayer. And really, in every single circumstance you can imagine, whether it's the good, the bad, the happy, the sad... We, we want to always be devoted to prayer. In fact, if we're devoted to prayer, I think that's when we are most encouraged and the most hopeful, whether it be good or bad circumstances. But especially when it comes to the bad ones, how easy is it to pray with the words of Jesus, thy will be done, especially in the moments where, that are most threatening. Not just we're having a hard time, but there is something imminently approaching that it's not a matter of question. It's a matter of something is coming and it's not going to be pleasant. I think this passage in Matthew chapter 26, we see with Jesus how he shows us how even he has had to deal with these kinds of situations. He has had to deal with the moments of imminent threat, and in fact, imminent death. Uh, but even in this kind of a situation, he shows us an example of what it means to truly be devoted to prayer. Not only that, but the, the boon, spiritually, that prayer is for the Christian, for the true child of God. And so I want to look at that tonight as we see, uh, beginning in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. Beginning in verse 36, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. 
Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We'll pick up in verse 47 in just a moment. But first, I just want to look at where the text starts. It begins with the Lord in the garden alone. Now, the disciples have come with him. But even Jesus makes the statement, you stay here. I'm going to be over here for a time. And I think immediately you see the importance of making sure that we have moments where it is just us and God. I think that's incredibly important. But, but that's more of a side point. But kind of adding on to that, when you look at the example of Jesus, his example is most impactful because well, as long as we remember who he is, Jesus is the son of the living God. We understand that. We read those passages where it talks about that. But sometimes I think it's so easy to just forget that he is who he says he is, that he is who Peter confesses when he makes that good confession in Matthew chapter 16. We need to remember who this is, when, especially in these moments. This is God manifested in the flesh. This is God among us. Emmanuel. This is important because what you see in this passage is, is God having to deal with things he should not have to deal with. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, very quickly, it makes this point of, of who Jesus was. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to, to himself, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus subjected his, himself. He condescended, and what does that mean? But that he was in heaven. He was the word, he was with the word, he was God, as it says in John chapter 1. But it, it even says that, how much did he subject himself? Well, we'll see in verse 8 in just a moment just how much he subjected himself. But just realize that this is God manifested in the flesh, and God is bent down towards the ground in agony. Over in Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, it makes this point. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, just a parallel account of this. It says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That's, that's striking. Because when you think about God, we tend to look at it in, in terms of uh, he's above those kinds of feelings. He's above those kinds of, of, of distresses. And yet, what do we see but God in agony? From the very outset of the story, this should, this should just blow our minds. Because this should not be. We were just talking about how far Jesus subjected himself when he descended to earth. And how far did he go? In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You, so you look at this story. It doesn't make sense that God, the creator, would even remotely have to come close to feeling these kinds of emotions. Not only that, but God doesn't die. And, and this tells you how serious of a story this is. But so, so we need to think about this. God in agony simply because of what? He wanted to save you. He wanted to save me. He willfully puts himself in this kind of a situation, in this position, for you. We all need to be thinking in this room, for me. That, that should be striking to us from the very beginning. But not only that, but as you look at who Jesus is, you see all of the emotions that he is going through as he is preparing himself for the cross. In verse 38 of Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 38, it says that he was beginning to be grieved and deeply distressed. And look at what he says, that my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. When you think about God, these kinds of words 
you don't immediately think, oh, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. And it shouldn't. God should never have to feel these emotions. He should never have to feel this kind of, this, this kind of sorrow. But as we just talked about, he does because he loves us. And what, why I think this is so encouraging while sorrowful is because this is Jesus' humanity on full display. And what this does is help us when we are in similar moments. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 15, again, very important passage because it talks about Jesus being that perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was not emotionally distant. I think sometimes when people read through, especially in the Old Testament, they look at God and, and how he presents himself, and they almost act like he is just emotionally distant, or, or Jesus is emotionally bulletproof. And that's just not the case. Now, while he goes through all these temptations, he never sins. And that's one of the reasons why he is the perfect example. But just because he never sinned, that doesn't mean he wasn't affected negatively by sin. And by, obviously, everyone else's sin. So there's, when you look at how he has to even go through these kinds of emotions, there's no excuse for any one of us to ever say, well, you have no idea what it was like after we've blown up on somebody sinfully. You have no idea the kind of day that I've had. This is an illustration that I've always really liked and I use time and time again because it's a good one. Can you imagine having a really bad, bad day, committing sin because you've just not been patient and you haven't allowed yourself to calm down and you just lash out with your emotions? Can you imagine after sinning like that, going to Jesus in the garden while he's bent down towards the ground in agony because of what's coming and saying something like, Jesus, you just you can't imagine what they put me through. Oh, really? I would dare to say no one in this room, at least, would dare approach him and try to insinuate something like that. Why? Because Jesus, he truly could say, you, ha you have no idea. You have no idea. I've done nothing to deserve what's coming. I've done nothing to deserve what my creation is doing to me. And so there is no excuse for anyone when it comes to... <laughs> lashing out when it comes to these bad kinds of emotions. Not only that, but this was God, pure, holy, blameless God, in agony because of the shame that was about to be unjustly borne on his shoulders. The cross, when you talk about the suffering of the cross, it was, it was both physical and spiritual. And I think there's, I think there's times to talk about each uh, realm of that. I, I think it's appropriate when people go through, especially when you're talking about the Lord's Supper, what we're trying to do, what we're supposed to be thinking about. I think at times it's appropriate to go through the physical pain that he would have had to bear, the physical suffering that he would have gone through. But we definitely need to make sure that we balance that out with the spiritual pain and the shame that's being presented. I like what one, this is a Roman orator that talked about the penalty of the cross. This is not a Jew, this is a Roman. And Cicero is, is his name. He says, Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched, too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property. And wretched is exile. But still, still, in each calamity, there is retained some trace of liberty. Even if death is set before us, we may die in freedom. But the executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross 
Let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. I think that this is important to note because this, again, this is not a Jew. <laughs> now, there's definitely something to be said about what the, how the Jews would have viewed this, but even to a worldly person, from a worldly perspective, this is a shameful death. And it's interesting that he talks about dying with some level of freedom, dying with some level of dignity. Here, there's, there's none. There is no dignity at the cross. And, and I think it's helpful to, to look at what the cross looked like to the world at the time because it helps us get into perspective the fact that Jesus does have to bear the weight of shame. Not his own, but everyone else's. And as in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, we referenced this as, this morning, but it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. As a result of the anguish of his soul, in verse 11, skipping down, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Now, this is definitely not saying that Jesus becomes guilty or becomes a sinner. That's definitely not what the Bible ever insinuates. What it does say is the innocent goes through the penalty that was belonged, that definitely belonged to the guilty. A penalty that should never have been put on his shoulders in a perfect world was because of the sin of the sheep that have gone astray. Because of us. Jesus understands the burden and the weight of that shame more than we ever will because we often, we just invite it on ourselves. Jesus had none. Period. And so this was truly, not just, it wasn't just a physical pain, but it was a spiritual burden that he had to bear. And we need to keep that in our minds when we think about the cross and how, and the, the kind of emotions that Jesus would have gone through being as perfect and pure as he was. So, so just from the outset, we need to have that in our minds, especially as you look at the words that Jesus uses in the prayer that he gives to his father. It is a sincere yet a very difficult prayer. He says, thy will be done. Not mine, but your will be done. As he is praying about this imminent threat, the cross, with that full knowledge. It's, and what's interesting is, it's not like he's questioning whether or not it's coming. He knows it is coming. But even with that being said, three separate times, three separate occasions, without wavering, he says, thy will be done. Even, even should this be the result, even should this be the conclusion of the matter. Now, just from the very outset, when you listen to his words of the prayer, I just want to ask, could you honestly, honestly say Jesus' words in your own prayer to God, to the Father? Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and yet he still prayed, thy will be done. What if you knew that poor circumstances were imminent? Maybe not necessarily a cross, you know, the living nightmare of your, of, of your subconscious coming to life. Would you still pray, thy will be done? God, I, I don't want to have to do this. But if it is your will, your will be done. Even if we knew that the cross, even if we knew that maybe we would be losing a job sometime in the future, would we still be able to say, God, I really don't want to lose this job. But... If that is your will, let it be done. What if, what if it was a loss of comfort? 
finally have financial stability. You finally paid off your car debt. You finally paid off your hospital bills. Finally paid off whatever. And you have some level of comfort. And yet, here comes another bill. Here comes another thing. And we're about to lose that comfort. And could we pray to God, I really, really would rather not lose this. But not my will, your will. What if it wasn't just the loss of something so, really so vain? What if it was the loss of a loved one? This, I think, hits us the most. Because when we pray, we often have no idea what's coming. We tend to be in a state of, I have no idea what's about to happen. But could we say, with even just the notion that something this bad is going to happen, could we say, I don't want this to happen, but Lord, if it is your will, then please let it happen. Let it be. Are we still going to be willing to pray that prayer? I think we need to be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we need to be praying for pain. I'm not saying we need to pray to suffer. But we need to be willing to pray the same words of Jesus when we are presented with the possibility. We don't want to be the kind of person who just vainly prays to God just by rote or repetition, as, he, as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, and just be meanest, meaningless, meaninglessly saying words, and then when it comes to pass, clearly we didn't mean it. We don't want to be that kind of a person. We want to be the person who can genuinely, sincerely say, Thy will be done. But the question is, how can we do that, especially if we know that something is imminent, like Jesus? How does he do it? In Hebrews chapter 12, I think it gives us the answer. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 2, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, this is a very, very powerful passage. But Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, after in chapter 11, he's talked about all of these several different examples who have displayed such faith to God. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 12 saying, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, and here's, I think, where the answer lies, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That word despising literally means to consider a small thing. Now pause. To consider the cross. What Je not, not just a cross like others had to face, but the cross that Jesus actually faced. Not just with the physical pain, but with that spiritual element too. Not disconnecting the full weight of what's happening when Jesus is put up on the cross. He despising the shame considered the cross a small thing, considered the shame of the cross that he was going to have to endure a small thing. How could he ever do that because of the joy set before him? Remember where we started? John chapter 1, he, the word was with God, the word was God, and he walked among men in John chapter 1 and verse 14, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. What does that mean? He knows where he was and he knows where he's going. He knows, he knows whose presence he is going to. After all of this, even after such a shameful and painful death as the cross. And what he knows is, this is what the Father's will is leading to. And I think that we need to look at it in those kinds of terms. When, when we look at the oncoming 
onslaught of the devil and the constant temptation of you may want to turn because pain is coming if you want to continue down this path. You think about when, when you see stories of, of a parent going through much for their child. So I remember a long time ago, there, there, was, there was this woman whose child was stuck in a burning building. They were a small child, so they had no idea what to do. And, and she goes in, not asking any questions, without any reluctance, any hesitation whatsoever. She just runs into the building, and she goes, and what does she do? She saved her child. She comes out, and she's got injuries. She's been burned. Of course, she went into a burning building. It's hilarious because one of the questions, and it's funny because even, even all the way back then when I read it, it was several years ago, but even back then when I read it, I just thought, what kind of an idiot asked the question, well, didn't you know it was going to hurt? <laughs> like, oh, shocker. Touch fire, and you're going to say, ow. Of course she knew it was going to hurt. But what, did, what, what does the parent say? Why do I care? Of course I know it's going to hurt, but that's my baby. That's my child. It's not a question. Of course I'm going to run into the burning building. Of course I'm going to save them. Of course I'm going to take a bullet for them. Of course I'm going to go through pain to keep them safe. Why? Because, because that's my child. For the joy set before them of protecting their child and keeping their most beloved safe, they could endure the pain. They could endure, when you get to back to Jesus' example, the shame. Of course it's going to hurt, and of course it's going to be shameful. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, could not just, not just grit his teeth and deal with it, but go a little bit further and consider it a small thing for what was coming in the long run. Are you at the point where you can think like Jesus? Whatever God's will is, even if I know that it's going to be painful, even if I know it may be, bring some shame onto me, specifically for his name, whatever his will is, I know it's going to produce the best outcome. Would you be able to look at the cross and say, I know that God is going to bring the victory through this. We struggle to have that kind of a mindset when it just comes to the smallest acts of, 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 of resilience and endurance in our walk of faith. So we want to get to the point where we think like Jesus. Not only that, but you see that he met his prayer by how he responded to the Father's answer. Over in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I really love this passage because we already read in Matthew chapter 26 how Jesus sees the party that's coming to arrest him, even sees his betrayer that's coming to arrest him. But you get a little bit more information in John chapter 18 in verse 11. Because what happens here? Well, the disciples, they don't like the fact that Jesus is being arrested. So you even have this information that Peter goes, he cuts off one of the soldiers' ears who's, who's arresting Jesus. Jesus stops him. And what does he say in verse 11? Put, put the sword back into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Remember where the prayer started let this cup pass from me, please. Just let it. But when he receives the answer, when the clear answer comes, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, well, fine. He doesn't say, oh, come on, but I prayed. <laughs> no, Jesus receives it faithfully. He receives it gracefully. He doesn't respond in anger or regret, but fully accepts the Father's will. 
Again, you just look at how he reacts, how he responds to an answered prayer. And it's, not, and it's kind of like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul asks three separate times for the thorn of the flesh to be taken out. And what does Jesus say? No. Every time. But Paul does not respond with regret or outlashes against God. What does he say? Because Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, guess what? I'm going to live in that. That hope. That confidence. And I'm going to let that actually help me to grow in the faith. And that's, that's, that's the kind of response that God wants from all of his children. Not just a couple. Not just the exemplary few. He wants that from all of us. And if you respond with anger because God gives you an answer that you did not initially want. You even prayed, please don't let this happen. Or please let this happen. And he says, no. When you respond in anger, when I respond with regret, and I make that clear and known to everybody around me, we didn't really mean what we prayed. We may have said the right words, but it wasn't sincere. We, we didn't mean it. It was merely vain repetition, as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. And so we want to get to the point where we can, even knowing that this is a costly prayer, be sincere when we say, thy will be done. And maybe it's just a matter of just building up the strength to be able to say those words. Because it is a bit of a scary prayer. Are we at that point? Well, finally, picking back up in Matthew chapter 26, I just want to read through the rest of the passage here. In verse 47 of Matthew chapter 26, it says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword. We learn that's Peter in John chapter 18. And he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its sheath, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It's a very sorrowful passage. But I just want to look at just a couple of things here, specifically looking at Jesus, how he really even reacts with the people around him. First of all, you see, we, are, we were just talking about how Jesus accepts the answer of, of the Father, but you see it even more in this uh, last half of the passage that we just read in verses 47 through 56. First of all, looking at his response to Judas, Jesus practiced what he preached, even in the more difficult moments, even in the... <laughs> traitorous moments. What does he call his traitor? Verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. If you knew that someone had stabbed you in the back, someone that was very close to you, would you be able to say, friend? No, we could come up with a lot more colorful words than that. 
couldn't we? And we tend to as well. It doesn't take very much for us to just start railing against somebody when they have just remotely slighted us. And here is one of the, the deepest betrayal in all of history. And how does Jesus respond? Not you idiot, you pipsqueak, you little weakling, you sissy. No, he says, friend. That, that should be striking. That should cut us to the quick. He didn't say, now that we're at this point of no return, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about you. Not only, not only did he not do that, but he didn't even do it earlier. In John chapter 13, that story where he washes the disciples' feet, he even knew then. John, I think John goes out of his way to make it abundantly clear. Jesus knew who the one was that was going to betray him. He knew the whole time. And even back then... What did he do? He knelt down and he washed his feet. Many of us would not be able to do that with that kind of, with that kind of foreknowledge. Jesus did. Jesus responds to betrayal by practicing what he preached all along. You think about, you think about the Sermon on the Mount. And what, he, what did he say about those who proved to be your enemies? But you persistently loved them. And he showed persistent concern for Judas. It almost seems as though by calling him friend, he's trying to just maybe just one last shot, not one last jab like we like to do, but just one last shot. Think about what you're doing. But we respond not by saying, oh, friend, what are you thinking? We respond by, I'm going to get one last lick in. Before they take me, mm, you're going to get it. Well, that's, that's, that tends to be how we respond often. It's not how Jesus responded. And we need to try and fix that gap, if there is one, between how Jesus responds and how we respond. Not only that, but you see this even with uh, his interaction with the other 12, the rest of the 12 disciples. You would think that by this point, all of them would understand exactly what the plan was. This is going according just to the plan of, of, of God that Jesus has been trying to tell them about the entire time. And even though the disciples have persistent confusion, Jesus doesn't take out his emotions on them. I mean, you'd think at this point it would be absolutely justified. How do you still not understand? Peter, what are you doing? But he doesn't, he doesn't speak that way to Peter. He heals the, the servant's ear, puts it back on to, to Malchus, and then he looks at Peter, doesn't berate him, but he just says, but why would I not accept the cup that the Father has given to me? Put, put your sword back in its sheath. And not only that, but he even gives them a little bit of instruction. Don't you realize that those who, who live by the sword will perish by it? <laughs> I'll tell you what I do. When I get angry and when, when, when it's been just, just constant confusion and I've done everything that I possibly can to get someone to understand where we're at at this point and they still don't understand, I just, I, all right, just go to another room. In fact, go to another house. I don't want to look at you. I'm sick of this. I'm just going to do this myself. That's never how Jesus responded. How often have, have I lashed out on somebody just because of a, simply a bad day? Jesus never did. He truly lived by what he preached. Truly following Jesus' example. Sounds like, I, I, just like what Jesus does, I'm not going to lash out 
on them. But not only that, not only am I not going to lash out on them, I'm also not just going to hold in bitter hatred for them. Just grip my teeth and, mm, I, I may not be smacking you in the face right now, but wow, do I hate you. <laughs> That's how a lot of people react. They think, look, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I didn't hit that man in the teeth. Oh, congratulations. But Jesus, he didn't have that kind of just, just restrained hatred. No, he had nothing but grace and love. And as we talked about this morning, compassion for those that betrayed him, for those that instead of supporting him and being a, a boon for him, just proved to be more of a hindrance. He didn't hold back bitter rage. He feels true love for those who are actively making his life even more stressful we could learn a thing or two from Jesus in that. Well, finally, I want to just think about how he was strong enough to accept the answer that the Father had given him to the prayer. It says in verse 56, at the end of verse 56, I think you see, what, I think you see how he had the strength that he did in this moment by looking at the contrast between the disciples and Jesus. At the end of verse 56, it says that the disciples fled. Now, when you look at the disciples' example in this story, you don't think, wow, what bravery. <laughs> you don't look at them and say, that's exactly what I would have wanted to do in that situation if I was one of Jesus' disciples. We look back and we say, I would have wanted to stand with him the entire time. And instead of, instead of Peter cursing to try and make people think that he was not one of the disciples of Jesus, I would have said in, the front, in front of everyone publicly, I have allegiance to him. He is my king. Oh, we, we look back and we would say, oh, of course I would react that way. But I think time and time again in our own lives, we prove that we would do just like what the disciples did. But I wonder, why was it that Jesus was able to stand faithfully while the other disciples, while the 12 disciples couldn't but fled? What is one of the main differences? Could it be that Jesus was trying to prepare them in verses 40 through 41, remember what he tells the disciples when he finds them sleeping? He says in verse 40, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? What's the instruction? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. Oh, I, of course the spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. And what did they do? They took Jesus up on his offer. They said, you know what? If he instructed it, we should do this. And they, no, that's not what they did. Instead of praying, like he said they probably should, they fall back asleep. The, the spirit definitely was willing. And you see that with Peter as he cuts off the ear. But, but the flesh was weak. Instead of taking Jesus' advice, instead of actually obeying Jesus' instruction, they only found benefit really in the physical while looking at the spiritual and almost belittling it in their minds. They thought that it was more effective. They thought that it was better for them to rest, get some sleep, instead of staying awake, losing a little bit of sleep, and praying to their father. What did Jesus do? Who, let me ask, who was going to need more energy for the next few hours to come? Was, was it going to be the disciples, or was it going to be Jesus? Jesus was going to be hung up on a cross. The disciples, they were going to be safely away. Jesus was going to be struggling, gasping for air while the disciples didn't ever have such, uh, did not have any such issues, at least not in this moment. 
Who needed more rest physically? Clearly, in, when you're just thinking about it logically, it would have been Jesus. But what does Jesus say? We need prayer more. That should be very striking. That should really stand out to us. That prayer, Jesus says, is more important than even just trying to give us more energy, trying to give us more strength. Can we belittle the spiritual in this way today like the disciples did? I think we can. Something bad happens. It seems like one of our nightmares has come to life. And, and, and what, what do people say? I don't have enough time to pray. I need to do something that's actually effective. We get a bad report from the doctor. Something that we've prayed about to God time and time again, maybe. But maybe we've kind of fallen off from that. Maybe we haven't even fallen off. Maybe we have been praying to him time and time again, and even up to the point. And then when we get this bad report, how do we show this kind of spirit? Well, I, I need to talk to someone else who can actually do something on this. I need to talk to another doctor, get a second opinion on this. I don't have enough time to pray. I don't have enough time to talk to the Father. Why? Because I need to talk to someone who can actually give me some answers. We have a higher regard for the physical than the spiritual. Maybe we struggle with anxiety. We say, I can't talk about it. I just, I just can't talk about it. I can't talk, talk about it. I can't let people know about what I'm feeling. I need to just go on a walk or something. Now, let me just say, I think that there is benefit to, to, you know, maybe doing something, you know, we're, I'm not just saying we only pray and then expect God to, to fulfill every, absolutely every single need and we just don't do anything. No, there's a balance there. But too often what happens is it's imbalanced because we say, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can and, and we leave God out of the equation. And what do we do when we do that? We are showing that we think the physical is more important. We're belittling, belittling the spiritual aspect. We're belittling what God says is going to be the most helpful, and that is coming to Him. Making a plea before the Almighty. But we tend to forget that we are praying to the Almighty, and I think that's why we tend to fall off from it. Do we want to be strong enough to accept the answer when it's not the answer we necessarily wanted, like Jesus are you willing to go to God in prayer like he was? Losing sleep? Are you willing to pray this kind of a prayer, thy will be done, even if it hurts? We need to be more like Jesus. Going to God in prayer, truly desiring for his will to be done and accepting his will gracefully and, and gratefully, thankfully. You may be a Christian and you may have been struggling with this for some time. We need to ask ourselves, have I been living up to God's expectation in this? Have I been living up to the standard that Jesus has set? If not, that's a problem. But if that is the case, you can fix it. <laughs> what do you do? You start now. What does that mean? Well, if there's something that you've been putting off because you know what God has told you to do and you've been keeping yourself away from praying to him because you just don't want to do that, well, what are you going to have to do? You're just going to have to do it. But what's going to happen? You're going to have the kind of confidence that Jesus had. You're going to have the kind of joy that Jesus had even in the suffering because of the joy set before us. If you're not a Christian, if you are willing to say, Truly, thy will be done, like him. Just understand that as we've indicated all throughout the lesson, you are saying you're willing to, like Jesus, 
pick up your own cross because that is what is required of you. If you want to be his disciple, you're going to have to pick up your own cross as well. And not just once, never have to do it again. Daily. It won't be easy. We just need to be honest about that. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be moments where it's extremely hard. But like Jesus, all the difficulties, all the hardships, all of the pain, all of the suffering can be considered a small thing for the joy set before us in heaven with the slain lamb, with our father. But that's only if you've put him on in baptism. Have you clothed yourself in Christ in that? You can make that happen tonight. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, let us help you in that. Please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.